verse 2, actually, because we covered verse 1 of chapter 4 last week. So it says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you in greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Oh, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Eustace, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of, Jesus, uh, of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my regards to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. That's presumably because the, the rest of the letter was written by a secretary. Uh, that's what usually happened in those days, but you'd sign the letter yourself to make sure that people knew it really was from you and it wasn't just somebody making it up. So I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains because he's in prison. Grace be with you. And that's the end of the letter. Now, um, just a, a quick retrospective on Colossians. So remember what we're dealing with here. Paul writes this letter to a small church, which is in inland Turkey. Uh, it's one of a group of three churches. The others, they got mentioned in the reading as well, Hierapolis and, and uh, Laodicea. And they're all about two miles apart from one another, different sides of the triangle. Uh, they probably all became Christians around about the same time. And the gospel spread from one place to another. And now three small churches in three very different cities, but very close together, are uh, doing okay. The smallest of those cities was Colossae, about, about 25,000 strong. I think we said last week that's about a painting or something like that, isn't it? But anyhow, in that small town, um, there were a bunch of Christians that Paul very much wanted to meet. He'd met some of them before in other places. He'd never, it seems, been to Colossae. And so he writes from Ephesus, where he's in prison. Well, some people think it was written in Rome, but I think it was Ephesus. And uh, this letter is taken along by these two guys, Epaphras and Onesimus, whose names you've heard in the reading, and uh, they come to deliver it to the Colossians. Why did Paul write to them? Well, he tells you. Earlier in the letter, he says this. My goal is that they, that's the Christians in Colossae, may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we've seen in the last few weeks how um, there are people coming into the church in Colossae preaching a very different kind of message, saying, Jesus, oh, you people worship Jesus. Well, that's good, but you know, it's not. There's better, there's better. You can worship Jesus and 
this angel and that angel and this spiritual power. You can take this remedy, this, this therapy, this course of lectures I will give you for a very small sum, and then you can join my cult. And that these cult teachings were coming into the church, and Paul didn't want this. Because he knew that it was only in sticking to their faith in Jesus that these guys would ever find out what life was really all about. And what was the great experience that God wanted to give them through coming to him through Jesus. If you start messing it up with all sorts of other stuff, you miss out on the whole thing. So I want you to know the mystery of God, he says, namely Christ. In him, all the resources of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Now, we've also said this letter divides itself quite neatly into three bits. Because there's a bit at the start, chapters 1 to 2, verse 5, which talks about Jesus and who Jesus is and why he's dead important. Why he's both God and human at the same time. And those two things come together in Jesus in a way that's not true of anybody else in history. And so he becomes the bridge between God on the one hand and sinful, failing humanity on the other. And he's able to bring the two of them together. And Paul stresses all of that in that first section. I've put it in blue on that side. And he just says it. He just declares it. He doesn't ask any questions, make any arguments or anything like that. But then when you get to the middle bit, you find he's putting together an argument. So then, he says, if just as you received Christ Jesus, then this follows, and then this follows, and then this follows. And you find this little word, therefore, since then, since then, therefore, running all the way through. So he's kind of saying, A, therefore B, therefore C, therefore D, therefore E. And he's taking you right through his argument from start to finish because he wants to get to the last bit. That's the other blue bit I put there, which is just going to tell you straight out at the end. <laughs> and what he's doing in that middle bit is saying, look, if this is all true about Jesus, the first things we've said, then this follows and that follows and this follows and this follows. And therefore, you have to live in a certain way. And in the last section, just says, this is it then, folks. This is how you live. And he stops arguing and just tells you, <laughs> this is how a Christian lives. This is how you live out this new identity that God's given you. And uh, we had a look at uh, some of that uh, in, in, in the last couple of weeks. We talked about six key relationships in people's lives, uh, areas where there are real flashpoints, where you could really act in an unchristian way if you wanted to. And he's saying, you've got to get these right. And uh, then he talks about praying and walking and talking. And that's the first bit of tonight's reading. Finally, you'll have noticed as we read through it, there's a long list of people with names like Aristarchus and Onesimus and stuff like that. And is this Paul just saying goodbye and waving his hand in passing to certain people? Uh, remember me to Aunt Emily? Oh, and thank you. Thank, thank, thank Uncle John for his Christmas present. What is it? No, it's not that. Paul never wastes a word. And every name he mentions here is something that's going to bring to their mind an actual walking, talking picture of the kind of thing that he wants them to do. Because these people are living examples of how you can live your Christian life with all cylinders firing and really be a fantastic person. So we'll see that in a minute anyhow. But those are the three things. Now, last week we looked at the six key relationships. That was wives and husbands, children and parents, well, it says fathers, but actually it includes father and mother, as we saw last week, servants and masters. And uh, in all of those areas of life, in your marriage, in your relationship with your parents and your children, and in your work, you could be really unchristian if you wanted to. <laughs> and so Paul lays down some principles about how you're supposed to behave as a Christian. And then he gets on to his next bit in chapter four. four. And he has three uh, little things that he wants to say just before he finishes given them lots of advice already over the last few chapters, but there are three things, praying, walking, and talking that he wants to talk about. 
I cover your private life, something that you do when nobody else is watching, generally speaking, anyhow, and also things that you do in public, things that people will see you doing. The one that you do in private, or semi-private, is praying. You may come to prayer meetings, you may pray with other people openly, and there's nothing wrong in being seen praying, but most of your prayer life, like the bit of an iceberg that's under the water, <laughs> ought to be in private, just you and God. So he talks about praying, he talks about walking. Now, I've, I've, I wrestled with what word to use for this, because he does use the word walk, but it's a bit old-fashioned, the Christian walk, and so on. But it's, it's coming back now, isn't it? You know, people say, talk about, uh, um, oh, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And so this whole idea of walking is becoming cool again. So walk simply talks about the way you live out your life, the things you do, the way you view relationships, the choices you make. It's like, it's like a, a child learning to walk, you know, putting one foot in front of another and things like that. Uh, psychologists sometimes say, you know, when we have a big decision to make, we go for a walk. Why? Because learning to walk when you were very little was the biggest concentration of energy and mind you ever had. And if you've ever seen a child who's just starting to walk, you can see their thought and the effort they're putting in. Now, if I put one foot wrong here, I crash down on the floor. I better not do that. And so for the rest of our life, the psychologists say, walking is associated with thinking and thinking really hard. So walking through life is a matter of making the right decisions, negotiating the obstacles, making sure you don't bang into lampposts or trip over dogs and things like that. And walking is Paul's word for how you live with other people. Okay. And then there's a third one, which is talking. And he talks about how you talk to other people as well. So we'll look at those three things, that triangle of advice he wants to give them, because he says, as he reaches the end of his, his letter to them, these people are living in a small town where lots of people are pagans, and they're looking at the Christians all the time. Other people are Jewish, and they think, oh, I don't know about these people. They talk about the Bible, and they talk about God. But, mm -hmm. And there are people who, who would be critical of the Christians in every possible way. They're a small minority who are very much under the microscope. So how do they behave in community? And that's why he wants to say, I think, these three last things. Look at them. First of all, praying. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, as Richard's already pointed out. Praying is not just something you do for a couple of minutes in the morning, oh, God bless mommy, daddy, and the dog, amen. And, and, and then you get, you're free to get on with the rest of the day. Prayer is a matter of getting to know God better and better. It's a matter of wrestling sometimes. You know, it's later on, Epaphras has been wrestling in prayer for uh, the people in Colossae, and he keeps on wrestling for them. What do you mean you wrestle in prayer for? Well, because although God wants to grant your prayers, when you start praying, you are up against spiritual forces that you can see that very definitely don't want those things to happen. And sometimes those forces have more power than you think they do. There's a book in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, in which Daniel is praying for a message from God, and an angel turns up with a message sometime later. And he says to Daniel straight away, I'm sorry, you should have got this message a bit quicker, but I was, I was detained by the prince of, of, of or, or, and he talks about spiritual powers that, 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 that have stopped him getting there. And so it's possible for the devil and those supernatural powers to delay some of the things that God wants to give us and we have to wrestle and, and work it through. We don't know totally. Prayer's a bit of a mystery about why things sometimes take so much time and so much effort. But what Jesus says in the New Testament is keep on praying all the same. Keep doing it. Don't give up. He tells a story about uh, an old woman and a judge. The judge is lazy and corrupt, and the old woman comes and says, I take my case, avenge me of mine adversary. 
And he says, no chance, you're, you're spotty and ugly and you don't have much money, I'm not interested, go away. And next time he comes out of the house, there she is on the doorstep, avenge me of my adversity, ah, go away. And he, he goes out and he comes back and uh, there she is uh, popping up from behind a bush in the front garden, avenge me of my adversity, oh, silly old woman. And every time he, he, he does anything in future, he draws the curtains in the morning, she's, uh, she's there, avenge me of my adversity. And the end says, Jesus, this judge took the case. Why? because he couldn't stand this woman going on at him any longer. Now, Jesus is not saying God is like that. God is not corrupt. God is not slow to answer. But what Jesus was saying was, even if, if you can get justice even out of a guy like that by just keeping on going, then how much more should you keep on going in prayer to somebody who wants to grant your request, wants to give you what you need, wants to see your needs satisfied? And if you keep on praying, Jesus said, it says in, in the gospel that uh, um, Jesus told this story so that men would pray and not give up. So prayer is important. Devoting yourself to prayer. Learning how to do it. You might find it first, you know, if, you, if you've never prayed before, and some of us may be like that. If you've never prayed before or never seriously, you might think, right, I am now going to pray. I'm going to wrestle with God for the next three hours. And you go into your room and say, dear God, ah. Uh, and you can't think what to say next. And you manage maybe a minute and a half, and then that's it. That doesn't matter. You've started. The important thing is that you keep going. And bit by bit, there becomes more and more something you can learn from. You can get something out of. And uh, you'd say it becomes more precious to you, and you start devoting yourself to it. That's what he's talking about. And he says, be watchful in prayer. First of all, watch yourself that you don't give up. No, that you don't think, ah, oh, well, I prayed yesterday, so I'll do it again tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow's a bit busy, I'll do it the next day. No, keep going. Don't let yourself slack off in it. But be watchful, too, for situations that need praying for, for things that you ought to be praying for that are happening out there in the world. Right now, there are so many things going wrong on our planet, and, and God uses the prayers of his people as one of the means by which he brings answers. We need to pray about those things. Watchful for things that are happening in other people's lives. People that you know, people you meet at school or at work or whatever, they need praying for. And sometimes we need a bit of insight to see, wow, I could just do with praying for those people. Because sometimes they could have a good front, and yet behind it all, there are very real needs that you can see if you're watchful. I think the other thing that uh, Paul means by being watchful here is be watchful for God's answers. Because God does answer. And the trouble is we tend to, to, to pray. To God, God, please answer my prayer. I'm desperate if you don't answer me. But if you answer, I'll be ever so grateful. Amen. Amen. And then the answer comes and we think, whew, that was lucky. <laughs> Forget all about it. That's not good. And so we're supposed to be watchful for God's answers as well as for the things we're asking for. I think it was Francis Ridley Havergill, well-known hymn writer in the 19th century. He used to have a notebook and uh, she went through several in her lifetime, actually, left them behind after she died. You can still read them. And on one page, she'd put down all of the things that she asked God for. <laughs> on the facing page, she wrote down the date when God answered it and how he answered it. And uh, that was fantastic uh, as, as a boost to her faith because she started seeing, well, God did that and God did that and God did that. I'd forgotten, but he did that as well. And the more you see how God answers, the more you realize what, why prayer is such an important and powerful thing. So devote yourselves. Be watchful. And he says, be thankful. Because when God does give you things, it's important to be grateful for them. Not just because we're nice boys and girls and we always say thank you when somebody gives us something, but because the more you say thanks to God, the more it builds your faith for what you can ask him next time. And you begin to realize there is more and more and more that he wants to give. 
So be thankful to and prompted and pray for us. Don't just focus all your prayers on yourself. Make your prayers really far-ranging. And uh, for those of you who were at uh, the camp this summer, um, you know, on my website, we've got these Bible readings for the mornings. I've, we've finished the six weeks now, but I'm keeping them going. I'm keeping them up there in case people want them. But with them, I've also put now some ideas about things you can pray for and where you can get information about prayer. And there's another little bit about there about how to have an exciting prayer time. So if you're young or if you're old and you think you're still young at heart or whatever, do have a look at that by all means. JohnAllen.xyz is the name of the website. And it's my page. It's marked Youth Stuff. Okay, and uh, if you want to learn a bit more about prayer, that is just starter. It's nothing big, it's nothing fantastic, but if that's helpful, uh, go there. And you'll find some sorts of links to different places in the world you can pray for, different uh, uh, things that, 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 that will send you information from time to time, all of that kind of thing. So that's the first thing he wants to talk about, praying. Because he knows if the Christian church is going to survive, it will be built on prayer. But then he goes on to talk about something else. And the second thing he talks about is walking. Not walking like that, but walking in the sense of, as I said, walking through life, the kinds of things you do. What he says is, um, a, sorry, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, or in old-fashioned versions it says the way you walk towards outsiders, the way you deal with outsiders, basically is what he's talking about. Make the most of every opportunity. So two things there. First of all, be wise with people outside, people who are not Christians, people who don't understand where you come from. Be wise with them. Make sure that they realize you are good news. If they hate you, if they persecute you, if they distrust you, love them back. Be wise. Don't be stupid with them. Don't be provoked into antagonizing them or something like that. On the other hand, don't be a sucker. <laughs> Be wise as well. Don't let them take you for a ride. You stand up for Jesus and stand up for what you believe in, but do it in a gracious way, a way that commends you to them so that even if they don't like what you believe, they start to think, ah, they're nice people. And they weren't nice people before, so maybe God's done something. So wisdom is the first thing. The second thing is opportunities. He says, make the most of every opportunity. What does that mean? Well, often people have used this as a verse in the past to say, you must evangelize at every possible opportunity. You must take every chance to recommend Jesus to people. And there is something in that, because we all miss loads of opportunities to wave the flag and say, I'm a Christian, and you should be too. But that's not the only thing. And you can be a little bit too keen on the opportunities. I remember once doing a, a university mission with a, 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 a guy who said, you know, they're doing it all wrong, this Christian Union, because they're trying to get into conversations where there are no conversations. They go and knock on somebody's door, and when they come to the door, they say, oh, yes, this is a nice door. It was obviously made by a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter, do you know? And, and you know, you can't make sort of radio four like that. You really can't. It's got to arise naturally out of the situation. But that's why it talks about opportunities, and God wants us to take those opportunities. They'll often come out of the blue. You've got to be ready for them beforehand because you don't know when they're ever going to come. But when somebody suddenly once says, I don't know what the point of life is, do you? Then you, yes, I do. <laughs> You've got to tell them one way or another, haven't you? And you probably won't get long to do it. Can you tell the story of how you became a Christian in under two minutes? You must be able to. Because if somebody says, when they're just sitting, having a chat together, so how did you become a Christian then? You will have about two minutes before their interest drops. <laughs> you really will. They don't want you to say, well, you know, I was born at an early age and go into your whole autobiography. 
They want you to tell them the basic points very, very quickly. So you need to be able to do that. Otherwise, you know, you've lost that opportunity. And Paul says, take the opportunities. But I don't think he's just talking about evangelism here. I think he's talking about a, a tur- uh, town in Turkey where people just do not understand Christians or what they're about at all. And they're not going to ask the nice questions that we like to answer. They're going to be watching you. And so he's talking about opportunities just to be gracious. Opportunities to, to do good. Opportunities to show you're a good citizen. Opportunities just to, to let people see the grace of God in action through your life. It might mean talking about your faith. It doesn't just mean that. I know lots of people who will talk about their faith and yet their lives don't really recommend the gospel. They're dogmatic, they're bombastic, they're not nice to be with. And uh, the people who will listen to you most respectfully and most interestedly will be those who have experienced you as a warm, friendly person that they want to know a bit better. So you get all sorts of opportunities to get close to people and you need to take those opportunities and make it happen. Sometimes it takes a long way, uh, a long time. I was talking this morning about our next door neighbours. They've lived next to them for 30 years and we tried very hard when we moved in to make friends with them. And uh, um, they knew we were Christians and weren't too interested in that and so they gave us a wide berth for a long, long time. And it's only a couple of years ago that they had a major problem in their lives and they came around and they said, listen, will you pray for us? And that's how far it's got until this week when there's been another problem and the wives had to go into hospital and they're all just saying, I don't know why you're so kind to us. I couldn't, I couldn't have done this on my own. You were there to help me. And I was so glad about that. And, uh, you know, it's still a long way from understanding the gospel and the cross. They're starting to ask some questions. That's 30 years. And I'll tell you, several times in that 30 years, I thought, we are never going to get anywhere with that pair next door. It's never going to get anywhere. But actually, it is. And you find that when it opens up with one family, it often opens up with the people across the street as well. We had some really interesting times with our neighbours. At the end of the summer, we had that really long, hot period. We sent a, a, a note around all the neighbours saying, listen, um, we're going to put some cold drinks out on our lawn later on this evening. Let's, the, the, the warm weather's coming to an end. Let's just get together on uh, the lawn and have a drink together. They came and they stayed for hours. I thought we'd be done with them in about an hour. But uh, actually, three hours later... Uh, they were still there, which was embarrassing because we had the uh, the um, grandchildren coming down for the weekend and they arrived and all these neighbours all over the lawn, what's going on here? But it's great. And it's one step at a time, taking opportunities, but that's what's got to happen, isn't it? You take all those different kinds of opportunities and God gradually works through them. It's not down to you, it's down to him. Okay, so there's all of that. And the third thing, talking, before we start to talk about some of the people just to finish with, talking... Uh, is, is an interesting one as well, because eventually you're going to say things to these people, and that's part of your acting towards your own grace. And he says, let your conversation be always full of grace on the one hand, seasoned with salt. <laughs> that's a great definition of the way that Christians are supposed to deal with people. First of all, full of grace. People who love other people. People who show mercy and compassion. People who are good to be with. People whom you don't look at when they're coming up to you on the street and say, oh no, and go across to the other side. People you want to be with. But on the other hand, people whose conversation is salty too. You put salt on your food to give it a bit more flavor, don't you? So it's got a bit of a bite and a bit of a tang. And if you're just grace and nothing else, 
And, you know, you get into the kind of conversation with you, oh, I don't know, the world's in a terrible state. Oh, dear, it's awful. You've got Putin uh, throwing bombs around and Liz Truss uh, uh, getting rid of all of our money and we don't know what's going to happen next. And it's, it's a terrible world to live in, don't you? And if all you've got is grace, you just say, yeah, I know. It's terrible, isn't it? It's really awful. If you've got a bit of salt as well, you might say, well, yeah, that's right. But then that's exactly what the Bible said would happen, you know, or something like that. There are a million ways of using that opening line. But, you know, it's up to you what you do. But you just try to say something that just, just came in. If somebody's saying, oh, he's terrible, that, that neighbor. You know, he's borrowed my mower five years ago. Still not got it back. And it's easy to say, yeah, I know. It's a bit like that. You know, you just have to be. But uh, it, it's, it, it's you, could, you, you know, without bringing the gospel into it, you could just say, look, he's got bad points, but he's got his good points too, hasn't he? Hasn't everybody? Never borrowed, borrowed anything and get, never given it back. I mean, let, let's, let's cut the guy some slack here. That's grace, but it's salt as well. It's making the guy think again. He's just going on oh, a self-pitying rant, and suddenly you've stopped it. <laughs> and so all of those things, grace and salt together, that's what Paul is asking for. Now, he then goes into this list of people. And let's just look who's there. First of all, there's Tychicus. And Tychicus, as we will see in a moment, is the useful one. He's the one that Paul could give any kind of job to, and he'd know it would be done well. I'll tell you a bit more about him in a moment. Onesius... Onesimus, another, he's the controversial one. Why? Because Onesimus, as far as we can piece the story together, was a slave who belonged to Philemon, who was somebody in the church there in Colossae. And you get more of the story from the letter of Philemon, one of the shortest letters in, in the Bible. Uh, but he's there in Colossians as well, because he's being sent back with Tychicus to uh, uh, Colossae. What's happened is he ran away from his master and somehow we don't know how but somewhere he met the apostle paul and he got converted and paul wanted to keep him with him because anesimus was just so cheery. he was really useful to paul in everything that paul was doing but he knew that really he had to sort things out with philemon and so he sends anesimus back to the place he's run away from what's going to happen to him even if philemon wants to let him off the hook it's a small town remember there are lots of other slave owners around who will be leaning on Philemon and saying, you must punish him. Fugitive slaves get their foreheads branded uh, so that they'll never do it again. Sometimes they get put to death. Shall we put him to death? I'll put him to death for you. No problem. And the Philemon said, no, I wouldn't let him off because I make it. You want to do what? All of our slaves will be running away and do that. So you can see the kind of immense pressure it's going to be posed if uh, Onesimus turns up and says, hi, everybody. <laughs> I ran away, but um, I'm home now. What's going to happen? No wonder he's a controversial one. So these were the ones who were bringing the letter. They brought uh, Colossians, and they brought the letter to Philemon as a personal answer for Philemon himself, and they brought the letter with them. Then we're our people, and Paul mentions him. Aristarchus sends you his greetings. He's the heroic one. <laughs> Why? Because Paul talks about Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner. Now, Paul often talks about people who've been in jail with him. There's nothing unusual about that. But the word he uses about Aristarchus, which he also uses about Epaphras in a different letter, is my fellow captive. It's as if you've been captured in war. And that seems to be a phrase that Paul only uses about people who are really devoted, sold-out, committed Christians who've given up everything for the sake of the gospel and they become captive to Jesus Christ, slaves of Jesus and he sometimes picks out people like that, Aristarchus and Epaphras, and he only ever uses this word about them. 
So Aristarchus clearly was a heroic Christian of some kind. And Paul doesn't tell the story here, so we'll never know what it is probably. But uh, he, he knows if he mentions the name Aristarchus, they know who he's talking about. Then there's Mark. Mark is the talked about one. <laughs> Do you remember John Mark? He was the nephew of Barnabas who used to go around with the Apostle Paul. They did their first missionary journey together. And then they fell out because Mark deserted halfway. He went on that first missionary journey with them and then said, ah, oh, can't stand this. No, I'm going home. I'm sorry. And he went off on his own. Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. Paul didn't. <laughs> and so Barnabas and Paul argued. And so Mark was somebody whom lots of Christians, hearing the story, would have looked down on and thought, oh, this guy's dodgy. He's untrustworthy. He gives up halfway through. But actually, by this point, Mark and Paul had become good friends. And Mark had done an awful lot of good work. And so Paul says to them, listen, you've had instructions about Mark. When he comes, make him feel at home, honor him as a servant of God, because that's what he is. Don't mind. It doesn't matter what he's done in the past. It doesn't matter where he's been. Receive him anyway. And so Mark's a talked about one. And there's Jesus, who's also called Justice. And I've called him the cross-cultural one, because his real name would have been Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew. And he was a Jew. But he was clearly often called Eustus as well, which is a Roman name. And Eustus, Yeshua, there's not that much difference between them. And he was as used to be calling Eustus as he was to be called Yeshua. And that means, of course, that a lot of his work was done amongst people who weren't Jews. He was 100% red-blooded Jewish, but uh, he was somebody who cared about, about the um, foreigners, Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish, and he felt in, at ease in their company because he wanted them to know about Jesus. And so that's uh, all we know about Jesus or Eustace. Um, and that's what Paul says are his Jewish team <laughs> at that moment anyhow. The only Jewish people he's got with him. All the others are Gentiles. And he feels at home with having three boys who, who understand a bit about bar mitzvahs and lacks and locks and things like that, you know, which uh, non-Jews don't understand about. Then there's Epaphras, and Epaphras is the local. He is the one who was the full-time worker, <laughs> you like, for the church in Colossae, plus Hierapolis, plus Laodicea. He worked between those, those three churches, and uh, he was with Paul at this particular time when Paul was writing a letter, and he couldn't get back to, to uh, Colossae, but he wanted to say hi to them anyway. So he's mentioned too. Luke is the medical one. This is the only verse in the New Testament that tells us that Luke was actually a doctor, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a medical man. You can see it in Luke and Acts because there are lots of uh, descriptions of the illnesses people were suffering from and the way that uh, Jesus healed people and so on, which could only have come from somebody who knew a bit about medicine. And so Luke was a doctor, but this is where it's actually said that he was. And Demas sends letters as well. Sadly, Demas is the tempted one because you read at the end of another of Paul's letters written a little bit later on, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so having been a, a, a involved in Christian work for some years, sacrificially and heroically gone around the place planting churches, Demas got tempted into giving it all up, and he gave up in the end. So those are the people we're talking about. They're the Gentile team, if you like, people who are not Jews, but uh, um, are nonetheless Christians. And then you've got two people who are actually there in Colossae, and Paul says hello to them. First of all, there's Nympha. She is obviously a wealthy lady, probably widowed, who's got a church in her own house. Then there's Archippus as well. Who is Archippus? We don't really know, but it looks from the letter of Philemon as if he might have been the son of Philemon and his wife. We just don't know. But clearly he's a young man, 
who's got a lot of promise, and God has given him some kind of ministry that Paul's saying, don't go back on this. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. So we can only guess about what that might have been, but clearly Paul thinks he's got a lot of potential and he must carry on with what he's doing because it is dead important. So those are the people. We can't, don't have time to look at them all tonight. You will be very glad to hear. Let me just introduce you to one or two of them for a moment. For instance, who was Tychicus? I called him the useful one. And that's because if you look around the letters in the New Testament, you'll find he's doing all sorts of things all over the place. He probably came from Ephesus, and that may be where he, he learned the gospel, then took it back to Colossae and Laodicea and places like that, and preached it there and saw a church planted. We know from Acts chapter 20, he was a safe pair of hands. What do I mean by that? Well, he was one of the bunch of lads who were chosen by Paul to take a massive gift all the way from Greece to Jerusalem. Paul had been collecting money for a long time from the different churches all over the Mediterranean to take to Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem was so short of money. They had lots of widows to look after, people who had no social security system, no NHS, and they were responsible for all of these people. And Paul had gone around preaching, you guys, you know, you've got the head of these brothers and sisters of yours in Jerusalem. And this massive gift had to be taken to Jerusalem. And so you find Paul chooses some people he can really, really trust to take the gift across. And that's one of the first things that you find uh, Titus doing. But then he pops up all over the place. He's a bringer of news. We see that here in Colossians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about uh, Titus coming to Ephesus as well. And he'll tell you all about what's going on. Uh, and, and, and so he's somebody who's, who's good at passing on news and bringing Christians together. He's a reconciler of others. He comes with Onesimus this time because he wants to say, hey, he's not just a runaway slave, he's my brother. And he's your brother too. And you have to forgive him for the past, accept him back. I can tell you, I can vouch for him. He is a good guy. So he's a reconciler. He burned to see people working in harmony with one another. He was a companion uh, for Paul as well. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, uh, it, it, it talks about uh, the way in which um, Tychicus was, was with Paul in Rome when he was in prison. And he was there to support him in the most difficult of circumstances. He wouldn't go away and leave him. But he would go away and leave him when he was told. Uh, oh, oh, no, no in, uh, this is another one. Sorry, Titus 3.12 again, uh, we're told that he was asked to substitute for Titus. After being with Paul in Rome, he was told to go to Crete, where Titus was leading a church, so that Titus could go and see Paul over the winter. And so he was somebody that Paul could send around anywhere. And the, the most touching of these, I think, is at the end of Second Timothy, where Paul realizes the end of his life is approaching. And he desperately wants to see Timothy again because Timothy has been his, his protege. You know, the, the young man who meant more to him than anybody else, didn't have a family of his own, and he wants to see Timothy for the last time. And so he takes somebody who is close to him, who stuck by his side through thick and thin, and says, will you go and let Timothy come? And that, of course, is Tychicus. And Tychicus knows that if he leaves Paul now, he's never going to see him again. But he pays that price just so that Paul can be with Timothy at the end of his life. He was somebody you could really trust. He's a living example of Colossians, of what this whole letter is all about. Um, and uh, he was somebody whom Paul could trust to go uh, anywhere and, uh, and do what he said. This is Paul uh, theoretically writing Colossians. This is one of the uh, Gustave Doré portraits from 19th century. And Tychicus is just getting ready to take it. And Paul is writing, but Tychicus will tell you everything. You can trust somebody like that. How about Onesimus? Let's just look at him, and then we'll leave it there, honestly, okay? This is the last one. Onesimus, he's, his uh, 
biography goes from slave to bishop to martyr. He started as a slave. That is the kind of thing that they had around your neck if you were a slave. 24-7, you had one of those around your neck. Not the most elegant thing in the world, but as you can see, it says on it, I have fled, seize me, return me to my master, and you will get one gold coin. If you found a slave where he shouldn't have been, that little sign told you, I have fled, I have run away. That's like a shopping trolley that's got written on the handle, stolen from Tesco or something like that, isn't it? And so that was what a slave had to water all the time. And Onesimus was like that. And somehow he got away. He managed to saw the thing off. And uh, he thought, I'm free, I'm free. And then they met the Apostle Paul, became a Christian, and got sent off. Did Philemon accept him back? We don't know. But it looks pretty obvious that he did. Otherwise, I doubt if we'd have Paul's letter to Philemon in the Bible. Because if Philemon just left him, nah, no chance. Thrown it away and had Onesimus put to death. I don't think anybody would have preserved that letter. I think it was preserved because Onesimus was set free. And in fact, from history, we've got hints that that was the case. Because he winds up as a bishop. It must be the same Onesimus. Referred to by a Christian leader called Ignatius of Antioch in a letter that he sends to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, after the New Testament has been written. End of the first century. Onesimus is still alive. He's 60, 70, whatever, by the But uh, uh, Ignatius talks about Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love. I pray that you may love him with a love according to Jesus Christ and that you may all be like him. A slave? Blessed be he who has granted you such an excellent bishop. And so you start from nowhere and God takes you and builds your life into something beautiful and valuable that never was before. That was the story of Onesimus. But he wasn't finished. He became a martyr as well. And the little picture in the circle there is a, uh, an artist's impression from those days of what it looked like when uh, Onesimus was put to death. And he was probably executed at Rome uh, in the period of persecution that came right at the start of the second century um, under uh, the emperor Domitian or possibly his successor Trajan. And uh, he'd have done 50 or 60 years of sustained Christian work by that point. What a good job that they didn't really know to Onesimus. And that's what God does, isn't it? He takes people who don't seem to have much to offer. Sometimes they become famous. Sometimes, like Tychicus, they don't. Sometimes they have a colorful career. Sometimes, like Onesimus, they've done terrible things. But God still takes them, builds his grace into their lives, and uses them. And so Paul says to, and we'll forget about Epaphras, although I'd love to talk about Epaphras and Nympha, but we'll leave them out because otherwise we're here till midnight, and I won't do my first lecture tomorrow morning. I'll just return you to this verse that we started with. This is what Paul wanted for the Colossians. If the Apostle Paul was here tonight, this is what he wants for you as well. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they might have full riches of complete understanding to know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Time for a cross volleyball, I think. Let's just pray together first. So, Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this service, we thank you for all that Paul wrote out of the wisdom of years to the Colossians. Thank you that it wasn't just his wisdom and the tips that he had to give. It was your Holy Spirit working through him that said things that were not just valuable back in Turkey in the first century when they all wore togas, but it's valuable for us here and now in painting, in Devon, in the 21st century. Help us learn from that letter. Help us be devoted in prayer. Help us walk in wisdom towards people who are not Christians. And help us take the opportunities we've got just to show the love and the compassion and the grace and the wisdom and the challenge of the Lord Jesus Christ when we get a chance. Help us with that, we ask for Jesus' sake.
Thank you.